Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, episode three. This is your host, Dan Sally, in digitally recorded form. So, so far for Immigration Month, we've heard from Professor Wong, who talked about the history of general nastiness towards immigrants in the 1850s and early 1900s, especially non-white immigrants. And we also talked to David, who came here from Colombia at eight years old and lived undocumented in this country for about a decade before gaining legal residency and going on to a successful career in the tech industry. So we've got our anecdote. We've got our history. The big question is, does the data back all this shit up? So to figure this out, I brought the data monkey in, my friend Mike. Uh, Mike is a stock analyst by trade, and so his job is pouring through data and making conclusions that he bets loads and loads of money on. And I didn't ask him to wager anything for this podcast, but I did ask him to give me some data on immigration to see how it meshes with what we've heard from our prior guests. Now, I think you all know my position going into this, but for those who decide to start listening for in episode three, uh, I'm the grandchild of immigrants, and I'm very sympathetic to the position of those seeking a better life in this country. So did the data monkey prove me wrong? Listen to this episode and find out. I'll be back at the end with some closing comments. Fact monkey Mike, the monkey himself, is in the room. Good morning. Hello. Man. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I, I want to tell you, so I went out to Facebook yesterday because everybody has an opinion on Facebook. And I asked folks who were pro-Trump or pro like border wall, pro uh, hawkish on immigration. Uh, I asked them, like, where do you get your information? Like, oh, what boy. are the things? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Exa- now, first off, I laid some ground rules and, and, and I told people, first off, if you're not an immigration hawk, don't even bother reading this. It's just going to make you mad. And then I said, no debating. Absolutely zero debating. You cannot debate because I didn't want like that whole like shit storm to come in. And I wanted to make sure the hawks spoke and it didn't devolve into, you know, what you can imagine it would devolve into. And for the most part, it actually remained pretty good. Like people shut up. And then like around, you know, wine o'clock, then somebody else posted, well, this article contract, you know, contradicts everything you said. And that's, and then I told them to knock it off. So, so far, like no debates. Like I made it, I made it through a Saturday night, Mike, with no debates over immigration. Yeah, right. Right. I took some refereeing though. (laughs) Yeah. Less than I thought though, less than I thought, but there's like a common thread with the immigration hawks that I found. And generally the folks who commented were either in law enforcement or, or somewhat related to law enforcement. So they had like, you know, relatives in ICE or friends in border patrol, or they were married to a police officer, for example. But it was very, but that was a very interesting trend to me. I mean, you brought up on, you know, before we got on line here, you mentioned you wanted to talk a bit about confirmation bias at one point and what you're kind of bringing up already here, right? 
is the idea that, you know, we draw our conclusions from a sample and oftentimes it's a non-statistically significant one, or that sample may be somewhat overweighted to something, right? So if you talk to a friend who's in border patrol, right? Border patrol, to your point, is going to have a sample of things that are going to seem very, very bad. And so that already, that's going to color your view of how you see this or the context of the whole, the whole picture of the story, right? But the reality is that that may or may, that, that may, or may not actually be the real story. And it also doesn't really give you a, a sense of a time series. So we don't even know, is it better or worse than it ever was? That's, it's hard to know. All you know is that the stories you're hearing now are bad. Yeah. And so I guess before we even get into the topic then, why don't you just explain the concept of confirmation bias to us? What is it? Why do we need to avoid it? And what did we do to avoid it for this episode? Yeah, well, I mean, no one can avoid it entirely. But what it really comes down to, the confirmation bias is really just the looking for data that supports your position as opposed to actually honestly looking for an answer. So you come to a, uh, to a topic with a preconceived idea of what you think the answer is, and you will begin to evidence build. And people do this all the time. It's not just in, just not in, not just in external things, but we do it internally too, right? We, my wife's a psychologist, so she talks about this a lot, that we evidence build. You know, when we, when we start making a case for something in our head, we just start to collect anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Just think about any time, just any time you're, you know, you're angry with uh, your, your spouse, right? And you start doing like, well, then they did this and this. And then there was this other time they did that. You're, you're now putting together a picture. And that's the whole, that whole concept is like, again, you're, you're, the confirmation bias is you're looking, you're evidence building for a position you already have, as opposed to trying to collect information to support a, to create a position. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just, yeah. So for example, if I am in law enforcement, generally the evidence I collect on a daily basis about the world through my experiences, through uh, the people I'm talking to and so on is going to confirm one concept of the world. Whereas if I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm listening to NPR, and I'm watching Rachel Maddow, and I'm talking to all my friends who tend to skew to the left, a lot of the information I'm going to get is going to build a picture of a uh, of a very different world. Is that that's 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 yeah. right? And well, and the articles that you will be forwarded or that you will forward to other people, right, are going to be a, are going to be confirming of your position, and you're going to either immediately discount or not even bother to look at the ones that seem to contradict the position. Yeah. And so I was thinking about how to approach this because I haven't seen what you've gathered or anything yet, and I don't really know a ton about it. But, you know, I was trying to think today, like, okay, what makes a good source of information? You know, a lot of times what I'll start to do is just read news articles, but skip through the actual news article and go right to like, where did they get this data from? And then go to that source of the data and then look at how the the method of how that okay. data was collected. That's, I mean, that's so. So honestly, like that's the best you're going to do. I mean, because otherwise, if you're just going to start to question whether any data is real at all, then you can just sort of say, "All right, well then, <laughs> now you're just in a, you know, your your hands over your your ears and your eyes closed and you're and you're yeah. singing at the top of your lungs, right? Like this, I got, I refuse to want to hear anything at all. And yeah. So so what? Do you, so so why don't you start off like? I've talked to a few folks about immigration and 
haven't really jumped into the current state. So why don't you tell me, what did you find out? I think the highest level message I would say is it's sort of surprising that the volume on this discussion is as high as it is right now. You know, and, and I can sort of point to two reasons why I, I say that. One, because the actual border crossings and apprehensions are at less than a third of what they were in the 1980s and 1990s. Like, and I'm talking not percentages, or we're not adjusting for population. Yeah. This is just the sheer numbers. So they've dropped dramatically in the last, you know, over, I mean, we're at a level now that's probably a little higher than it was two or three years ago. So again, if you want to just, if you only want to take a series and show you a picture of like, you know, I think I found one chart that maybe the economist had posted that showed like, you know, four years of data and, and sort of sewed it spike like growing over four years. And that's fine. But in the broader context, um, you know, you're talking about border crossings that were over 1.6 million in say like, around 2000 and then this you know currently we're probably around 400,000 to 500,000 so and that's so in and does that rep what is that as a total volume of let's call it like illegal immigration yeah so that's so that's the other question right because I think the other way this comes up is in talking yeah. about things like the wall and are you pro wall or anti-wall and I I think the I think that I think what's interesting about that is actually it seems like from what I can find about two thirds of the undocumented uh, uh, immigration is actually just overstaying visas. And most of those people arrive by plane. You know, some of those are from from Mexico. I think probably about 16 percent of that is from Mexico, about 16 percent from India and China combined as well. So, and these are, so these, again, Venezuela is another one where you're getting some from the Philippines, you're getting like, but all in all, then that, then, then it falls off pretty dramatically. It's pretty, it's pretty fragmented across a lot of different places. So, yeah. And that's, that's actually, so the last episode, uh, I spoke with someone who had come over here with his mom when he was eight years old and they just over again they came on a tourist visa overstayed their visa and then achieved legal residency you know years later but that that seems to be more the story so then why the focus on mexico it's framed as a mexican issue because that is the border right the border is with mexico even though i mean the majority of these illegal border crossings now are really all coming from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, there, and they're coming, and they just happen to be the the places that border Mexico to the south. I mean, so you have to, they have to get through to walk to the U.S. They would have to go through Mexico. You know, these are places where some of the most violent in the world. I mean, so you know, El Salvador is the world's highest murder rate in terms of just homicides per ten thousand people, and I think right behind that is Honduras. And then Guatemala still makes the top 10, even if it's not in the top, top one. So, you know, these are, these are tough places to be. And the murder rates amongst women and children are very high. And so, like, like these, are, these are places that have, have a long history of pretty tough violence and some pretty bad social environments. So the, the idea that people, you know, might want to escape from there and go somewhere else is, is, not, is not crazy. I mean, they're just they're trying to get to a better place. And, and so what you see is not only is it that's now the majority of 
the majority of these people are, are really families too. I mean, so you're, you're seeing more and more, in fact, like a large number of them are even unaccompanied children. So that was one of the sort of startling pieces of data I came across, you know, so the percentage of border apprehensions that are now actually unaccompanied children has gone from less than 5% to about 12% now, which is of, of the total border crossings, which is a pretty large number. If you start to think about that, I mean, talking about sort of 50, 50, 60,000 children that are just kind of showing up without, without anybody. There's, there's a couple of things I'm picking up from what you're saying. First off, before I even get into that, on the topic of drugs, if you want to smuggle drugs into the U S hands down, the dumbest way is to have somebody carry it. Like, think about it. Like Uh, how many kilos of cocaine do you want to sell? How much fentanyl do you want to sell? Now, secondly, what I'm, what I'm picking up about the data here is what you're saying is for the most part, if we're talking about people illegally crossing the border with Mexico, the majority of those folks are either women and children and the number of unaccompanied children has started to tick up. So these are people just fleeing violence. I, I went back to uh, election results going back to 1992 and what people said was their most important issue. So what drove you to the polls? What was the number one thing? One, two, and three are always uh, education, economy, healthcare. Always. The interesting thing is immigration didn't even show up as an issue until maybe 2008 was when it started. And it was, and it was just 1% of the people voting, Right. Now, all of a sudden, 2016, it goes up to, guess what percent? Hmm. I don't know. What's the number? I'll tell you. I mean, it's larger, obviously. Okay, good, good. Price is right rules. Okay. (laughs) This is the best part, right? So you'd think, okay, it's 2016. Obviously, we're now talking about the wall. Uh, The number of people who thought immigration was the number one issue jumped up to a whopping 4%. Yeah, so 4% of people. So it went up four times, great. But so to give you an example of some of the other big issues that came up, racism, race relations was 6%, which never showed Mm -hmm. up, like never, since 1992, maybe earlier, I don't know. The number two issue, though, was the candidates. So people actually went to the polls more because of the candidates than because of any other issue. And that's why I I, Mm. I feel like, obviously we're talking a lot about Mexico and from what you're telling me, that's not really, you know, if the, if the issue is illegal immigration, then maybe Mexico isn't the place to start. I mean, certainly that's their border. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand the nature of wanting to emphasize that. And I can understand maybe, you know, working with them jointly to try to figure out a way to avoid some of these, all of this migration that's coming from south of Mexico up through into the U.S. But again, I, I think it's it's just trying to put this in the larger context to me of that. Again, let's restate what I said at the beginning. The total number of these border crossings is that like, is while it's up from maybe two or three years ago is well below where it was 10 years ago and well even more below where it was yeah. 20 years ago 
So directionally, this has already gotten better in a sense, right? Like we can, and so the, the nature of what we would call a crisis down there seems to be more that we have increasingly like family units and children showing up there. It's not the actual just volume of apprehensions. Yeah, yeah, that, totally, that totally. Yeah, I'm not hearing like a huge problem here. I mean, I mean, there there are problems. I mean, there's certainly yeah. like problems with it right but like i I just i I certainly don't see like why this is like the main issue that people seem to be focused like it's if i if i counted it by headlines it seems to be getting a lot of attention i mean i think back to like you know how much to use the the journalistic phrase like how much ink was filled quote um you know on like the caravan yeah right like last (laughs) last year And, uh, and i was like I mean, these happen every year, partly because it's just seasonal. Like it's a function of the weather. If you're going to walk a thousand miles, you know, you want to go and it's probably going to be the most yeah. conducive to walking. And so that's why we, we get these like seasonal surges in this stuff. And so, you know, again, I, I hate to sort of be the, the political cynic here, but you have to question like whether or not you're being manipulated when people bring up an issue conveniently right around an election time that doesn't seem to have any actual factual reason why we decided to talk about it at that point. This is not to say that there's not an issue. Like there's very much a problem down at the, at the border in the sense that there are tons of families and unaccompanied children and people coming in here from these violent countries that need, that are looking for asylum. And so, yeah, I mean, that, but that's been, it's been a consistent thing for a long time that portion has grown sort of the, the family unit and children has, is growing mm-hmm. as a percentage of that. And, and again, we have to put it in the context of like a, a total number that's actually on a, if we looked at something like yeah. a moving average is actually falling. I'll tell you like the one data point I found out, and this isn't scientific by any method, but you know, the one thing I looked at when I was trying to figure out, I mean, what's the truth in the situation on the border specifically because the reality is, you know, we talk a lot about data and what I've seen, especially like you get on Facebook is somebody posts one data set, then the person on the other side has their own data set. And pretty soon you can't trust anything because people are just kind of throwing spreadsheets. They haven't looked at back and forth from each other. And, uh, and, and, you know, yeah, it becomes, it, it just, it, bec- yeah. it becomes totally unproductive. So what I, what I try to figure I've got, I've got a spreadsheet full of numbers. Well, I'll see your spreadsheet full of numbers and I will raise you two spreadsheets full of numbers. It, yeah. And it's always some like bullshit link, like, like, uh, Americans for, you know, safe borders or, you know, like, like it's always some, you know, the, the, here is a chart that is going higher from the right to the left. Yeah. We should do something about this chart. Yes, yeah, that's exactly it. It's always, it's always some like shitty think tank. And, and so I figured like, okay, what's like the least corruptible evidence of people's opinion. And so what I looked at is I looked at the 2018 election results and I tried to figure out Okay, so what are the border states thinking? What are the border districts thinking? And there's some interesting data in here. Like the first part is there is one, there is one Republican congressional district on the southern border. And so, and that's the, that basically stretches from El Paso to ground like Corpus Christi or like southern Texas. I don't, my Texas geography sucks. So it, it it's in Texas. But if we're going to take the 2018 election in part as a referendum on Trump's policies, that would indicate that at least from a congressional district standpoint, they're not 
necessarily on board. Now, the one thing I wanted to take into account is I wanted to take into account gerrymandering because, of course, maybe all these districts are carved up to be blue and maybe that's causing the issue. So I went county by county. Even on the border counties, it's still pretty blue. And so that would tell me is that if our southern border were truly overflowing with MS-13 and women carrying babies made of fentanyl and stuff like that, they'd probably be more pro-wall than they are right now. And what I'm seeing is I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of people on the border screaming for more hawkish policy. Is there mm-hmm. is there anything wrong with my approach to this here? No, I mean I don't I don't I don't think so. I mean I obviously there's some there's a couple of preconceived ideas about, you know, that that would necessarily lead them to be sort of blue or red or mm-hmm. that that was would correlate, you know, hawkishly a hawkish position on that issue would correlate entirely with how you might think about your voting, but I but I but I I don't think I would reject the premise outright, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one point on the crime thing, though, I was going to actually, this is sort of a non sequitur a little bit, but let me, let me at least point out something that I thought was interesting is that, you know, the, in this rhetoric, we talk about violence and crime and and MS-13 gets brought up a lot. And what's interesting is I looked at the FBI's National Gang Intelligence Center. Maybe they're just not actively trying to get a a good number, (laughs) which is, which would seem sort of odd to me. But if you go back over like, basically 15 years, they've quoted the MS-13 like membership in the U.S. at, at roughly 10,000 for the better part of two decades. So either it hasn't grown, they haven't bothered to update a more accurate number. I can't, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but but there could be a lot of reasons there, or maybe it's just very hard to get an accurate assessment, but therefore it's very hard to then create narrative that says it's a much worse problem either i I don't know um i mean the point is that it's just that the number that they're quoting is basically stagnant so there's there's not like a a large and growing number it would appear of sort of ms-13 members in the united states they got to get their numbers up yeah (laughs) if they're if they're trying to build a a a crime army they're doing a poor job of it yeah sorry guys america just on the whole if we if we go way back uh, to the really the beginning of, of let's say, non-colonial migration to this country. There's always been a, a history of, uh, of racism. And a lot of it goes back to the fact that a lot of these major migrations happened during the Civil War, happened at a time when America was really trying to define its racial identity in a way. And, and there was one side of that struggle or one side of that argument very much was about sort of a a society where the white population stood at the top. The first episode we did was talked extensively about the history of Chinese migration and how they were basically like, you know, relegated to the status of perpetual foreigners, or even like you talk about the Irish and Italians who came over, who were maligned for their blatant popery. That's popery as in uh, adherence to the Pope, not popery as in like, you put it in your bathroom and it smells nice. And so when I'm looking at this, and again, I'm kind of going off the data here, but when I'm looking at this, if the conversation's heavy about immigration and yet the statistics aren't seeming to indicate a growing problem, and I'm taking into context the history of America, 
I, I, I'm, I'm able to draw a pretty clear conclusion as to what's going on. You know, it's not too difficult for me to get it. Well, interestingly, Dan, I was going to put that in a historical context because yeah. I mean, you brought Go this up. I do have this chart. I think it would be kind of interesting. I had pulled up, a, again, the U.S. Census Bureau's data yeah. that statistics on foreign-born population in the U.S. from 1850 till, to, to now. Okay. And interestingly, like, so yeah, you almost wonder if there's like a percentage of foreign-born population that you can hit like a threshold at which it becomes like an easily exploitable issue like mm-hmm. that's again I, it's a question not an answer i don't know but i just to your point because i'm just going to use the the context you just put that in which is that around 1890 to 1900 like the country had about 15 percent of the u.s population was foreign-born mm-hmm. and that fell to a low around 1970 that was under five percent of the U.S. population being sort of foreign-born, and now that's actually risen back to about fourteen percent. And this is the economist in me that was going to want to talk about something like this. But <laughs> that you know, the, the working-age population, like across the developed world, is basically fall. Is that that growth rate is slowing, and in fact, it's going to it's going to go to near zero. I mean, in the U.S., we're slightly better than the rest of the developed world, but but not by much. And in fact, if you look at the world, the world in total, because I've actually looked at this data quite a bit over the last two years, the working age population growth, when you adjust for the gross domestic product is actually going to be negative for the next like 30 years mm-hmm. because you know, birth rates are falling globally, but they're the highest in sort of countries with low GDP. So like you look at like the, the total working age population growth in the next 30 years is all coming really from like India, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, places like, you know, Europe, the US, Japan. I mean, these are basically going to be close to zero in working age population growth before too long. And But I find it interesting, right, that by definition, your dependency ratio is going up, right, in these countries, right? So you, you have entitlements for elderly people. As that percentage of the population is growing, you're going to the dependency ratio being the number of people who depend on those things divided by the number of people who are going to have to pay for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the working age population who you are taxing to pay for these things. So the d- dependency ratio is rising across the developed world. And in the U.S., it's going to continue to go up over time. Mm-hmm. So the irony of having, there's sort of some, some weird irony about having this fight right now. Again, to come back to sort of the major point I think we made at the, at the start, mm-hmm. like why is this an issue today? And you could actually say, not only is it odd that it's an issue, it's one that almost is, is could be in theory sort of some self-inflicting damage because we need, we're going to need immigration to actually keep a working age population growing yeah. in the U.S. in order to have any chance of actually supporting. Well, and here's the interesting thing too that I find about that. And just again, to boil down what you're saying, we have more old people, less people working. That means fewer people to pay for the retired people who are going to be using lots of healthcare, And that's obviously going to come at a cost. And if we don't replace the people who are working or ideally grow the working age population, then that cost becomes greater to the economy. Now, the interesting thing here is that last episode, I talked to uh, David, who was brought over here by his mom from Colombia. 
Colombia was in the midst of an economic crisis. They had to get out. They came here, overstayed their tourist visa, and you know the rest is is history. Now they're both American citizens. But the interesting thing is that David's mom actually had a master's in finance. So she actually worked at a bank in Colombia. And then she came here, and because she didn't speak the language and because she was undocumented, she cleaned houses. You know, the reality is, is in these countries, you look at these countries facing crisis, Venezuela, Somalia is obviously an older example, Afghanistan, you see these countries facing crisis and all these people, you have a lot of educated people and all these people have a choice, which is to stay and suffer or go somewhere else. And the one unique aspect of America above all other countries in the world is that there is no other country you can go to and become a citizen in the fullest sense. So for example, if you move to Germany, you might become a German citizen. You are never going to be German. If you move to France, same thing. There is no ethnic identity to America, despite the fact that there are people attempting to define it. There's no ethnic identity. You know, America comes with no baggage in terms of in terms of culture, we—I think that's fair to say, you know—but we come we come with no baggage in terms of culture. We come with no baggage in terms of like what does it mean to be American. You can basically come and define it for yourself. And and I, I don't foresee the number of people looking to 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 escape crisis going down. And and I think the big question for me is, and I think for all of us is, if I have somebody with a master's in finance looking to escape Columbia and the only barrier between her being able to apply those skills in America is some English lessons and a green card. Well, I think the choice is clear for us. You know, I think we benefit more from getting that skilled person into the economy, but I think that's one way we can, easily start to counter some of these demographic pressures we're going to face. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Here's, a, here's an interesting, maybe a, to throw up a, a data point in there yeah. to, to what you're saying. I mean, so 60, 68% of governments around the world, at least, at least based on, you know, the 148 countries with available data, this is the UN data on this, their current, you know, rationale for their immigration policy is stated to be that to meet labor demands in certain sectors of the economy. And that and that's far greater. That's a lot greater than the number forty six percent, which argue for that their current immigration policy is based on safeguarding employment opportunities for nationals. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess there was one question I had for you that was along that line, which is the the other thing, and I've seen this firsthand with with my own grandparents, which is your new arrivals to the U.S. In, in in many cases are going to be doing some variety of manual labor. You know, my grandfather was a bricklayer. Other grandfather was a meat packer. My grandmother cleaned houses, you know, but what happens is they're the next generation really capitalizes on the opportunities of being here and takes advantage of that. And so again, you look at my, I mean, I don't know if my grandparents even made it out of high school or to high school for that yep. matter, but the majority of, you know, their children went on to work in jobs that were far more lucrative. And did you find any trends there? Yeah, so I did find some of the Pew Research 
data that they had on some of this comparing second generation and uh, first generation and then comparing that to all U.S. Mm -hmm. adults. And so interesting. I think it's I think it's somewhat supportive of what you're saying, which is that their their data. And this is a couple of years old, but I don't think it's totally again, we're talking generational. So the fact that the data is maybe five years old doesn't really make a difference that what you're seeing median and annual household income is for first generation is definitely lower than the U.S. total. But then the second generation, it's right in line with the median household mm -hmm. income. And interestingly, that the percentage of college graduates in first generation is lower than the, the U.S. total, not by much, but, but it is. But the second generation is actually noticeably higher than, than the U.S. total. Right. So to put this in context, just so we have some numbers. So the numbers they gave you anyway was the, the first generation is about 29% college graduates. That's versus the U.S. at 31. Yeah. So not a huge difference. But then that second generation is 36 versus 31, which is actually, that seems statistically significant to me. The other thing and you, I thought would be worth mentioning too is that when I looked at the social security, because there is sort of this idea of like that they come, you know, people come here for benefits kind of thing. And one, I sort of question that, yeah. you know, people in Honduras know anything about the uh, entitlement programs of the U.S., I, 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 that they know the nuances of it. I, I would question that premise. But not to mention, like, if it's welfare that you're looking for, why are you stopping in America? You know? Like, like out of all the countries, we're the worst. You got can you got Canada. I mean, I mean, in their defense, <laughs> that's a long, that's another long walk, though, from the one you yeah. guys already had. So, no, I just thought it was interesting. Here's a here's an interesting point. I mean, the Social Security actuaries assume that actually half of half of illegal immigrants actually pay yeah. Social Security taxes that they'll know, but they're very unlikely to actually collect yeah. benefits from it. So it's that's sort of the offset. I don't have any numbers to offset that because I think then I was trying to look at sort of the overall usage and kind of fits with sort of what that idea that the poverty amongst first generation is quite a bit higher than the U S average, but that actually it breaks down into once you've actually taken out a couple of areas, like one, when you take out sort of the earned income, income tax credit, which is really just a function of having a higher poverty rate, lower median income than the earned income, earned income tax credit is going to be counted as kind of a quote cash benefit. But if you adjust mm -hmm. for that and take it out, then the actual usage of cash benefits is is actually lower than the than the overall country level. I'd be interested to see the figures on social mobility between American citizens on some form of public assistance and and new arrivals on some form of public assistance or, or by broken down by income level. I'd really love to see that. Well, that's an interesting, yeah, that is, that is an interesting question. Cause like over the last 30 or 40 years, you know, it has become demonstrably more difficult for people to move out of a socioeconomic yeah. level. Right. So to, to migrate from one level to another um, has become more difficult yeah. generally in the U S you know, and I don't have that the data right in front of me right now, but I have looked at that data and it is very clear that that is the case, that it's become ever more difficult to sort of move from one sort of socioeconomic level to another. But, but interestingly, that sort of compares with the data I just gave you. And again, I, I can't say that they're entirely comparable, but it would say that, you know, within one generation, the data on immigration 
comparing the generations of immigrants would argue that first gen can go from below median to median in one generation, right? So there is some mobility, right? That you're going from a sort of, you know, a higher rates of, a higher rate of poverty, higher rate of, uh, or, and a lower median income to at least the, to at least the, the U S average in one generation. But it sort of, it does beg the question is like, and and, and again, I have no data, but it's a, it's a fascinating question you're raising, which is like, if you like generation to generation in the native population, are they moving, are they improving at the same rate? So if that, if the immigration data says you go from below median to median from generation to generation, are we seeing that the native population, do they move or does it just stay stagnant? Yeah, that's a question we can answer. That's definitely a question we can answer because I think like, you know, a lot of times too, we make the mistake of, of talking about policy in terms of, do we get paid on it rather than, is it right? However, that being said, if you're talking, where do you get more bang for your social spending buck? And it points in the direction of, again, new arrivals. Well, then the the concern that that they're taxing social services or what have you is 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 misguided. Yeah. I want to touch. I want to touch on one more topic. What did you find out about drugs? Because that's the big issue that I think a lot of immigration hawks bring up is that we've got drugs coming over the border, build the wall, stop the drugs, so on and so forth. Most of that comes through the legal ports of entry. And, you know, anyone who watched Breaking Bad has, has seen sort of the, the restaurant supply trucks that are like 80% filled with restaurant supplies yeah. and 20% filled with something else, right? Like, that's and that's that. It's a sheer volume game, I think. I mean, it's just really a function of you bringing so much stuff across. I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars that go through U.S. ports of entry on for commerce daily between Mexico and the U.S. and and so you're bringing so much stuff across all the time. There's trucks going back and forth like nonstop all day, every day, probably almost 24 hours a day. To refer back to something you, we said at the beginning of this, this is just the sheer you know, statistics of understanding how any enforcement's going to happen, right? Like you're, you're inspecting trucks, you're checking for things, but you have like people per truck, right? Like, you know, like how yeah. many inspectors per, per truck coming through or, you know, our trucks per inspector is probably the better way to say that. There's only so much you, you by definition, there's going to be some error rate that you're just not going to capture. And so that's what, that's where illegal smuggling would sort of live in, right? Is that that area of like, yep, we're going to write off. It's like writing insurance. Yeah. You just assume you're going to lose a certain amount, right? To the inspection, but then you you base your economics yeah. on the idea of how much you're going to get through. You've covered a lot here. If you were to just wrap everything we've talked about up into a nice little package, you know, what story does the data tell? in terms of the state of immigration today? Yeah, I mean, sort of what we said at the start, right? That I think the the nature mm-hmm. of the crisis is not one of volume, right? The total number of illegal immigrants has actually fallen on an absolute basis and certainly as a percentage of the population. Um, the total number of border crossings in total and specifically, you know, are, are really uh, like the actual apprehensions are down relative to 10 and 20 years ago 
it's no, you know, it hasn't seen levels like this. You go back, you have to go back to sort of the levels we're at now or levels we saw like in the seventies. And then, you know, that's sort of, and that is mostly really about families and unaccompanied minors and things like that, that are really the nature of the crisis today. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, thank you for doing the digging for me. And also thanks to the folks on Facebook for giving me some stuff to work with. It's, uh, you know, you are surprisingly less verbal than I expected. People of Facebook, but I'll try harder next time. All right. So from the data, we found out that most undocumented immigrants come over on visas and overstay, just like David talked about in episode two. Uh, we also know that Asians comprise an equal portion of the population of undocumented immigrants as Latinos. So this really negates the notion that the southern border is ground zero in the fight against illegal immigration and we need to build a wall or steel slats or laser shields or whatever they want to put there, a moat with alligators in it. We also know that immigrants generally use less in terms of social services, and they tend to have children who rise out of poverty at a greater rate, again, just like David. And that fact, with birth rates declining and our population aging, uh, really calls for the need for more people like that, more people who are going to move here and support all the programs that aging people like, like Social Security and Medicaid. So economically, a more welcoming immigration policy would make sense. There's one more thing, though, that came to mind as I was speaking with Mike on this, which is really like what happened to the U.S.? What happened to us as a nation that cares about the things that are driving people to walk across the entire nation of Mexico to get here. Uh, you know, when I was younger and there was something terrible going on in the world, like in Bosnia, for example, we really saw it as our duty or as our mission to protect the people who were subject to violence. And we have a similar situation down in Central America today. And the only message seems to be don't come here. So Rather than build a wall, why not just send that money down there in the form of aid, try and stabilize the region? Now, I'm pontificating now, but as always, I'd be interested in your thoughts. So feel free to swing by the site, Unpundit, that's U-N-P-U-N-D dot I-T. Good God, I need a new URL, but that's the one we have for now. Please come by and leave your comments. So last episode of the month is going to be the wrap-up episode. I've invited my good friend, comedian Mehran Kagani, to join me. Uh, Mehran and his family fled Iran during the Islamic Revolution. He actually lived there for part of the Iran-Iraq War, has some really interesting stories, and I thought he'd be a good person to chat over immigration with. And because of who Mehran is, we really don't talk about immigration all that much, but it's still a pretty interesting episode. Hope you'll join me. As always, this is Unpundit, Dan Sally, signing off in a sexy, sexy voice. Oh, yeah.